Welcome to Think and Reimagined, produced by Live Abundantly. Live Abundantly is committed to justice, equity, equality, diversity, and inclusion for the creation of a global society which respects the rights and well-being of all citizens. We invite you to visit our website livesabundantly.com to support our initiatives for women, youth and children. Thinking Reimagined, changing the mindset for For a better better global society. Hello everyone, this is the Thinking Reimagine podcast. I am Nifemi Oguntoye. In continuation of our podcast and celebration of young people, we are featuring interviews some young and upwardly mobile Nigerian women heart with our own Dr. Amma, Executive Director of Live Abundantly. In this first interview conducted by Chilean Azu, an IOM returning, Dr. Amos spoke about her work in Nigeria with Live Abundantly vis-a-vis women development and gender equality. Well, one of the questions in this conversation stood out for me. To what extent can women go in a society that expects their submission if they are to get married? Dr. Amos sure has an interesting response. Okay, my name is Azuki Kichilian. I'm a Nigerian and I live in Lagos. Um, we are here today at the Lipid Hall, Ikoin, to um, talk to someone special, someone who has been an influence and didn't actually um, know that she was because um, of the little distance, but today I'm portraying her because of the International Women's Day activity, I'm portraying her as the um, my mentor. So, um, the woman I choose to portray as my mentor during this occasion of the International Women's Day is she has been a great woman in Nigeria. I got to know her through um, IOM, one of IOM's programs, and I got to discover some of the great things she's doing for women and girls in Nigeria, and also for children, disabled children, the helpless, and a lot of things that she's doing in Nigeria that actually got me interested in knowing more about her and finding out who she is was really an inspiration for me. Um, thank you for having us. Um, we actually, I am actually portraying you as my mentor. I got to know a lot about what you're doing in Nigeria, working with you, speaking during your events, how you reach out to women, and how you um, how you impact young girls in Nigeria, how you help the helpless, and um, you are a voice for many. It's really huge for me. It's an inspiration to me. So how do you feel knowing that you are, in, you are influenced? Well, Jillian, I should say thank you very much for this opportunity to speak with you today. And I am humbled that you consider me a mentor or mentress, as I would say. Um, I have been incredibly lucky to have many women and men that I consider mentor and mentresses. Um, Oprah is one of them, but there are quite a few others. Um, and I can't remember the exact occasion, but I've always uh, felt that uh, this world, this global society that we live in, um, has influential and um, inspiring women and men. But today we're going to focus on the women. And it is the women that uh, support other women in achieving their goals and uh, having an influence in society. 
and that is very important when we begin to look at the world that we live in right now. So I am incredibly humbled and uh, that's very generous of you to think of me as a mentress. Thank you so much. Okay, so um, can you talk to us about um, the your commitment to co your community, what you've actually been doing towards social causes in your community? Can you share with us? Definitely, I can. Thanks. That's a wonderful question because Live Abundantly, which is the organization that I founded, really is based on the premise that we want to address the issues of inequity, inequality, violence against women, um, and change the mindset of how women are perceived, not just within our small global community, but worldwide, um, which is really the same thing, to be honest with you. And um, we started out by focusing on issues dealing with violence and violence through a greater lens. So whether it is rape, domestic violence, whether it's human trafficking, um, all of those things, you know, child brides, you know, genital mutilation, all of those come under the purview of the gender lens. But more importantly, we also look at the issues of inequality and inequity. Because if we do not address those issues, then we continue to perpetuate the society that we have. Um, human rights is uh, everybody's rights. Women's rights is human rights. Women have the right to be in school. Women have the right to have jobs. Women have the right to succeed. But the invisible limitations that prevent women from achieving this, and some of them are visible, such as cultural, um, biases, religious biases, uh, and of course the big one, which is access to education and the economic resources. So we really see ourselves as a platform for change within the society, and we do that through education and advocacy, and that's very important to myself and the co-founding um, trustees of Labour Bank. Great, thank you so much for sharing this. I want to ask um, this question. I'll just share briefly something I experienced. During the International Women's Day, I met a friend and we were talking about the way things are within Nigeria for women. And um, they actually think that women are taking things too far for the few women who have their voices, for the few women who really want to um, achieve their goals, do something differently in the world. And they believe that it should not be so especially if you want to get married. Do you think that in Nigeria we would ever reach equality? Do you think that our women will have their voices? Do you think that our women will be able to uh, serve in great places as time goes on? Well, that's a very powerful question you asked. And I knew almost the beginning you started that that question must have come or that statement must have come from a male. Um, we live in a global patriarchal society and men have had the power either because they believe that it is power given to them, bestowed on them, or it is power that they believe because of their gender they hold over women. But the reality is, population-wise, it is 50-50. Actually, slightly more men than women in the society, but that does not give men the right to lord it over women. Um, unfortunately, there are many biases that exist. Some of it can go back to colonial times when men were the ones who were educated and women became homeowners, homemakers, excuse me. 
But if you're honest and you go back in your history, you will find that women have always participated in the community. Women have always worked. Women have always contributed. Things changed when as we modernize and as you know, the colonials leave and independence is granted, more education is focused on the boys. But as time has gone on, women have had equal access to education somewhat, as well as to um, being part of the community. But the reality is, being educated does not stop you from being married. It, there's absolutely no relationship between being educated and being married. As a matter of fact, an educated woman has a better chance of taking care of her children, understanding the development of children, and ensuring that her children do have a place in society where they can thrive as well as contribute. So education has nothing with being married at all. As a matter of fact, I get great concern when girls go to school and by the time they finish secondary school, they're married off. That's child marriage, and that is against the laws. It is against the laws of the United Nations, and it's against the laws in Nigeria. Now, having said that, the equality right of Nigeria has not been um, adopted on many occasions, and that is very important because what does that say? That everyone has the right to education, that includes all girls, going up to the highest level, university, and being able to access jobs and earn. Uh, and then, of course, inheritance by law, all girls and boys have the right to inheritance, um, access to you know, economic opportunities. So let's be honest, if we don't begin to make this shift, we will continue to have an imbalanced society. When you look around globally, even within the African continent, look at the other African countries, look at the ratio of women in government, women in higher levels of public and private enterprise, and you will see that Nigeria is lagging behind. Look at the figures from Rwanda, it's over 50%. Look at South Africa, look at the Cameroon, Niger. Those are the neighbors of Nigeria. We are falling behind, and until we begin to address these issues, the issues that affect women predominantly will be second-rated to the issues that affect the general populace, and particularly men. So, time for change, when you look at um, exploitation, when you look at human trafficking, it affects more women and girls than men. Why? Are we less important? No, we're not. We're equals. Yes? So if we're a country, a, de a democratic country that recognizes the UN Charter and belongs to the United Nations and the specific agreements that we've come to, those agreements say women and men are equal. We have access to education, access to jobs, and if we're going to close the gender gap, which the World Economic Forum says is going to take 108 years, it's time to start moving in Nigeria. Indeed, it's time for change. Women can no longer live under the shadows of age-long tradition and retrogressive culture. Thank you, Dr. Ama, for sharing, and thank you, Chilean Azu, for driving that conversation. The other interview by Hawa Kulu Yusufu, a final year student of Elizard University, spoke to Dr. Ama on Nigeria and the implementation of United Nations Resolution 
on women, peace, and security. What was the rationale behind mm-hmm. the United Nations Security Council resolution one two thousand thirteen? Well, to speak about the rationale of the United Nations Council, you have to speak about um, the go- the global issue of women overall. Um, whilst this particular resolution focused on conflict. Yeah. You know, the, impact of the, the impact of conflict and on women. Including women in more peace processes in more. Yeah. Yes, it, it did. You have to look at the demographics. So we know that 50%, close to 50% of the world is made up of women. Um, and when you look at that, you have to also look at the society, the global society we, look, we live in right now is patriarchal. Yeah. It's a patriarchal society globally. So it's the men making the decisions, it's the men causing the conflict, and it's the men trying to figure out how they're going to resolve the conflict without including the women. So this resolution really focuses on, one, in looking at how it affects women. How does this conflict impact women? And we know that it impacts women disproportionately. It just does. Any kind of conflict. Also, how do we now get women to participate in peace building and nation building? Because you can't do one without the other. But there's also the issue of um, equity, making sure there's equitable representation of women. Because in terms of leadership, as you look around, and COVID has made that absolutely clear. Because COVID is a natural conflict, it's a natural disaster. Yeah, but it's a conflict. It's, it's raised all kinds of conflict. Women are not in positions of leadership, neither are women being included in decision making. So this resolution was looking at the umbrella of all of these things and how we can get women to be more involved and how we can take into account the experiences of women within the areas of conflict and begin to put in measures that will protect women, that will honor women's rights, that will enable women to be more engaged in peacekeeping, that will enable women to have a seat at the table in terms of decision making, but will also enable women to to be participants in their own future, economically, socially, politically. Those are really the key umbrella framework of this resolution. So, as you well know, this resolution came into effect in on the 31st of October 2020, which is almost 21 years ago. And um, for anyone who is keen to understand how Nigeria has implemented or not implemented, I think it's a wonderful case study that you have selected in looking at that implementation. Why were other resolutions on women, peace, and security introduced? Because after resolution other ones introduced on women, peace, and the, on the women, peace, and security agenda from 2015, from 2008, from 2008 to 2017. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So why were those? Why were they done? Well. 
I think that with any resolution, you can write a resolution today under a certain lens and realize that there are other issues that have not been addressed. So you have to look at things. I always say to people, always look at things through a gender lens. And when you look at it through a gender lens, you begin to realize that there's some areas that you have not covered or should be included. One of the things that came about and why it was revisited, and there were more, I think there have been nine resolutions altogether, the, 20, the 2000 up till 2017, then nine altogether, if I'm correct. So the original one plus eight. What they were doing in those resolutions were really trying to clearly define certain aspects. So you have the aspects of sex, um, sexual violence as a weapon of war. You have the aspect that's looking at sexual violence as a way of um, dehumanizing women even further. You look at sexual violence and sexual exploitation because the exploitation piece did not come into play. And then they realized that the implementation was not going as well. So it was important to think about how do we now engage women in terms of being more involved in the leadership? How do we have more um, participation of women? Um, and they also actually had to come back and look at issues of funding, issues of accountability, um, and issues of transparency and implementation. So there were so many other things that over the course of 20 years they've realized that they've had to fine-tune in order to get to where we are currently. And I dare say there may be other resolutions. I mean, let's be honest, the last time they met, they were going to put up some other resolutions and it was just defeated and said no. So there is room for even more resolutions to come through, but the basic premise of the resolution stands true till today. It's just the fine-tuning of aspects. And if you look carefully, those things that have been fine-tuned actually have to do with the word, with the sexual violence against women and using it as a weapon and looking more in depth at the, um, the crisis, expanding the definition because conflict resolution, uh, sorry, um, confl well, conflict goes beyond just being armed, armed conflict because there is conflict even in Nigeria right now. Yes. It's not necessarily arms per well, se, but it exists. You've got kidnapping, you've got the, the insurgency, you've got drug and human trafficking. All of those things were not included in the very beginning. So th the spectrum has widened and it's because they're doing their work of looking at, looking at it through a proper gender spectrum. What action slash specific role has Nigeria taken in implementing the resolution well, you know the answer to that question, Howard. Do you need me to answer that one? So let's see. The resolution came about in 2000. Nigeria did not do anything till 2011 when it actually had the first discussion about how to implement. So for 11 years, it just sort of was there, nothing going on. Was it because it wasn't a priority? I don't know. Do you know the answer to that? So if you ask me as an advocate and an activist, I would say there wasn't that much emphasis on it at that time. I mean, Nigeria was one of 140 countries that were signatory to it. 
but the level of implementation or lack of implementation tells me that it was not a priority at that time for Nigeria but for whatever reason in 2011 the the respective ministries began to see that the work needed to be done something needed to be done so the first and initial discussion about implementing a national action plan really started in 2013 sorry 2011 but the first national plan was not um, was not presented until 2013 because it took two years but if you look at the way the framework was set up national plans were supposed to last about three-year duration and then you come back and you give a report so 11 years went by when nothing was done right yeah. so you got the first plan that came out in 2013 which was supposed to carry us through to 2017 and then the second national plan came into effect 2017 to 2000 well I don't know that we've got the result quote-unquote of feedback or a third national plan that has not been in discussion perhaps because of COVID and all the other issues that are going on but I do hope that they come back and address it ironically what I what I do know is that of those hundred and 140 countries that signed on um, the data shows that only 25% of them actually had an active national action plan, action plan that was continuous um, and many of them would say it's because they had um, funding you know the way this pl this plans work you have to have funding but I also believe that priority was not given to this um, when you when you, and, and this is um, prolific in Nigeria where they come up with laws they come up with decrees and all of these things but they're not implemented in the same manner that you would expect um, and it, it comes to making it important you know what is the importance and significance of these laws how does it affect the status quo because the status quo in Nigeria is is the patriarchal system that we continue to carry along by implementing this it means that you will have to now give women and women will have to take the place at the table and be active decision makers and leaders um, and when you go back and look at and I'm going to digress very very just a little bit of digression here to show you how this works when you go back and look at COVID the COVID crisis, the COVID pandemic, when you begin to look very carefully at how that has affected women and girls, you can see an increase in um, violence against women. You can see the loss of jobs. You can see the aggression that women are living with. We can look at the insurgencies that we're having right now. We can look at the number of schools that are closed, about 600 schools in the north. All of this is turning from um, frustration, disagreement, name it, militancy, in just one country. And yet, the number of women that are in positions where they can speak to the situation and act on the situation is limited. Go and take a look at your COVID management teams and all of the other um, protocols that they've set up. It's mostly men. Where are the women? 
if you don't have women in these discussions, then there is no one speaking up for this, those women. There is no one saying this affects women differently. And for that reason, action must be taken. Yeah? So, um, I know I did digress. So, let's go back to it. So, we did the first no, national no, club. No, no, don't, don't stop it. Because I want you to go back to this. So we had the first national plan, and then the second national plan came in, yes. right? Yes. Has there been much difference between the first national plan and the second national plan? No. no, because what we know from the first national plan was five states were able to implement their state plan, because there's a national yeah, plan, there's a, there's, state, there's a state plan, there's a zonal, yes. geozonal plan, yes. there are all kinds of plans, but the implementation is poor because five states did it with the first national plan. Do you know how many did it with the second national plan? Six. So, in a country of 36 states, only 11 states can actually say that they have enacted, implemented some sort of action plan to address this resolution. Now, the degree to which they've implemented it is another subject for discussion. But if you think about it, 21, almost 21 years later, only 11. Only 11 can speak to the fact that something was implemented. Where's the accountability? Where's the transparency? How effective is it? I don't know. Perhaps your next paper will be on that and you will find out a little bit more but 11 states out of 36 at what point in time will all 36 states take this off that's a good question isn't yes, it that's a very good question yes bless you thank you why did nigeria start the implementation process 13 years after why do you think hmm i think it goes back to something i said earlier prioritization. I don't know that it was a priority at that time. It wasn't that they were not aware of the issues. I think it was just not a priority. And the implementation process, as I shared, actually started, well, the consultancy in terms of getting people together and talking about how it's going to work, what's going to be included, really started in 2011. And it took them two years to actually implement the first plan, which ran till 2011 actually 2016, because the second plan came into place in 2017. So I think that when you talk about these things, you have to look at prioritization, which I've just mentioned. The second one is funding. Um, how is this going to be funded? Uh, from what I understand so far, from what I have read, um, funding was left up to the countries. Generally, it's the countries who then fund the implementation. Uh, and then in terms of funding, you're hoping that states will come up with funds. You're hoping that um, the multinationals will give some money. You're hoping that the foreign agencies that support things in Nigeria will also bring some funding. Um, but there was no strong allocation of funding or personnel to get this started or to see this through. Um, and I, I also think that there's a lot of resistance 
in terms of when you're dealing with issues that affect women um, in a patriarchal society to address these issues means that you have to have a mindset shift you have to shift your mindset to begin to see women as equal too. you have to begin to shift your mindset to recognize that women have rights and those rights must be acknowledged you have to shift your mindset to understand the importance of education, nutrition, economical participation, political participation. It's a mindset shift. You have to shift your cultural and religious mindset to recognize that not only are there um, societal issues that are affecting women adversely, but there are also cultural implications, religious implications to this. So until there is a mindset shift and until women begin to assert their human rights and their rights to be included in governance and their rights to be included in decisions and their rights to participate on a socio-economical political platform to the same degree that men are participating you're going to have the disparity and this disparity affects even the those at the lower socioeconomic strata even more adversely than any other level to what extent has the resolution been implemented in Nigeria how let me ask you that question to what extent do you think it's been implemented mm, not very large extent. <laughs> I think you just answered your own question, didn't you? But you want me to give you my response. Yeah. Now yeah. yeah, we haven't done well. We've not fared well at all in Nigeria. Um, let's see. In 2013, when they put out that action plan, um, they came up with the five pillars, and uh, you know, the protection, the prevention, the prosecution. The promotion, there's one more, I can't remember what it is. Uh huh, yes, I know you would remember it. They were very loose terms, weren't they? Because they really did not specify how each of this was going to be done in the particular situation in which we exist. Um, along the same line, they did uh, talk about some of the, the creating the committees, the steering committees, creating synergy with DFID, creating synergy with the EU so that they could have some programs that they could implement. The degree to which those programs were implemented, well, I'm sure you have the answer to those questions, don't you? So I don't need to dive into those. Um, they also went as far as um, establishing the gender unit, as you know, in, um, well, across the country, but in very specific police stations, which is good. But the reality is how effective was it? Establishing one thing is another thing. Using them effectively is another. This is a country where we do not speak about sexual violence, let alone the violence that occurs in conflict when you're displaced. I mean, the, I think 100 and, no, sorry, 1.8 million internally displaced people in Nigeria that, it, that are known of. 
that's the data we have the accuracy of that data I don't really know I think there are actually more than that and it's getting worse when people are displaced and they're being violated it's a double whammy right yeah. who are they going to are, the, are they gender units in those displacement camps that they're going to speak to to tell them what's going on um, so you can imagine how whilst we've put some of these things in place in police stations they're not being used to the magnitude that you would expect as a matter of fact more and more discussions are going on now about gender violence right than even before it's not because it never occurred before it's the cultural stigma about speaking up and that stigma also affects those who are victims of gender violence um, especially in armed conflict who do you go to what do you do in terms of psychosocial um, support for these people how do you reintegrate them so there were there were a lot of um, pieces um, that were not addressed and yet there were some things that were done so yes congratulations that we have um, the committees, the steering committees, the the gender units, although if you go to most police stations, it's a desk. It's just a desk with a signboard. Not, no, not so much somebody sitting there handing out information or information being transmitted to the local areas, into villages, into rural areas. Um, um, I think funding was also another issue for them. So the implementation, the accountability, the follow-up um, became an issue in for the first one. When you go back and when you start looking at the 2017 um, national plan, yes, they did redefine some of the verbiage of the pillars that they were going to use and took into consideration a wider lens of the conflict so that it now included insurgents, militancy, well now we have to include kidnapping, um, we have to include of course and I think they included it already, uh, exploitation, um, human trafficking, drug use, so all of those things have now been included. So that was good that they did that but at the same time um, having working committees that are discussing things and actually doing the work in terms of providing you know education for those who have suffered in armed conflict or the Chibok girls or the Isabachi girls or the, the children who are now dealing with the with the um, kidnapping who are out of school you know how are we going to support those children how are we going to support those families? What kind of psychological support is available? I don't know that those issues have been addressed as well. Um, and I think funding continues to plague this, um, this implementation as well. Because when you don't have a set-aside sum from the government or a set-aside sum from the states, um, your implementation sort of flutters and it's not consistent so as I indicated 11 states can boast that they've had some sort of a plan 
but the degree to which it is implemented, the degree to which it is monitored, the degree to which there is accountability, the degree to which there is transparency varies. I personally have not seen a report that actually says X amount of money was raised and this is how the money was used or X amount of money was raised and these are all of the areas or all of the steps that were done. I, th I personally think that, um, and, and this even goes back to the, the sustainable development goals, when the bandwidth of expectations is so wide, uh, you, it's difficult to come back and actually give concrete responses for each of them but if we begin to probably make it shorter so that you're really focused on specific, the implementation of specific things um, you're more likely to have better um, results so in my opinion like yours I would say the results have been mixed why did Nigeria even adopt a second national action plan hmm, that's a good question I don't think Nigeria had a choice because once they put out the first one um, and they began to realize and actually let me go back to that because I don't remember the exact year but there was a year when the resolution really focused you know the newer one of the newer ones I want to say it was 2013 2014 somewhere between no it wasn't 13 somewhere between 20 and 2016 you may have to go back and look at it there was a resolution that really focused on the implementation you know the accountability um, and um, the implications so I think that may have been a reason I think I don't know for a fact you never know these answers in Nigeria but I think that that may have thought, brought them to go back and look at what they had done in 2016 which was a 2013 2016 because it's a three-year duration um, and then they came back in 2017 well clearly they became quite aware that the lens that they were using to look at the national plan um, did not take into um, consideration the situation in the country which you and I have spoken about at length from the militancy to the insurgency to the kidnapping to the to the human trafficking to the heightened level of um, gender violence forced marriages that occur there's so much going on so I think that they had to come back and look at that and and then they had to come back and look at the pillars the language of the pillars was very vague and what they came back with is much more succinct because they're not just talking about prevention but crisis management they're not just talking about um, protection but prosecution is even become more important now the extent to which they have prosecuted anyone are you aware of any cases yeah. I'm not I'm not aware I mean I've, I've heard more about how they're going to um, um, What's the word I'm looking for? They do it a lot with the insurgents, where they sort of um, readapt them, reassociate them yeah. with. Some, there's more of that going yeah. on with those who have caused the conflict and the harm, as opposed to those who have suffered and have been victimized by it. 
So, uh, I mean, I'm glad that they've come back and they've real, realigned the framework. I'm also glad that with the second um, action plan, that the VAP, the Violence Against um, Persons Prohibition, which was signed in 2015, became an act, was enacted. Well, it was signed by um, Goodluck Jonathan, but once again, when we come down with these laws and these acts, they're not being reinforced. So I believe only 12, well, 11 states and the FCT have actually domesticated it. Um, this, is a, this is a law that will actually help and looks at a wider lens of including those affected by conflict and all of those vast areas that I've previously mentioned. Um, and it's mostly the northern states that are still not enacting this. Um, and then I'm going to just bring in as well the child rights, you know, the child rights law. I mean, how many years ago was that? 2013. 2013, we're now here, and only about 24 states. I think Bauchi is the one that's still on hold, or maybe it has been enacted. We need to look that up. But my point is, when you have these laws in place to protect women, whether it's the VAP, whether it's the child rights that protects the girl child, children and the girl child, yeah? These need to be domesticated in all states because it begins to protect them even more. It begins to not just protect them physically, but it takes into consideration their rights, it takes into consideration their education, it takes into consideration their participation in governance, participation in the community, it takes into account education. If we don't educate people on informally and formally we're not going to make progress right going out there and having discussions is of no consequence if people don't see how it benefits them immediately so how has Nigeria fared on a scale of 1 to 10 what would you give them hmm Nigeria, like you said, Nigeria is still a very future um, country, and I don't think a lot of people even understand. You can talk, but comprehending, comprehension is a skill. Comprehending the problem at hand. So, and like you said, funding, not only funding, allocating on those funds. Mm-hmm. The allocation is a problem. They, they might as well give them the funding, but the people in place to, to get that funding, public, public um, spending in public policies in Nigeria, not only this, public policies have been a problem. Implementing public policies has always been a problem. The laws are in place, the resolutions are in place, but actually enacting them has always been a problem in Nigeria. With all of this, I'll give them five. You're very generous. Or less than. Yes, I I will give a four. 
and my four is because they've actually done some Something. things. Yes. But until you begin to go past that threshold where people know what it is and as you said, understand um, for this to have effect, we have to start with children. We have to engage the youth and we must engage the men. If the men do not understand and participate and be a part of the process, we're not going anywhere. It's just resolutions, people going to attend conferences, coming back and doing the, the fluff. I call it fluff, even though people may take offense to it. But getting committees together, discussing things, and saying you're going to do something until you actually take action, you know, put your feet to the ground and you're going to places, you're going to the rural areas, you're educating the community, you're educating and finding leaders. Um, they say they're peace ambassadors. What are the peace ambassadors doing? A peace ambassador must be doing something within the community. How many peace ambassadors have you met? And how many, how many are women? Shouldn't the women be the peace ambassadors teaching each other things, talking about things? I've always maintained that it is time for us to have intergenerational discussions. Teenagers, you know, children, mothers, grandmothers, talk about your experiences. Talk about sexual violence. Talk about conflict. Talk about how all these things have affected you. So that there is a greater knowledge base and that knowledge base can bring about change. But sitting in your little silo, knowing that you've been violated, but not going to that gender desk at the, at the police station, does not help you or anybody else. The perpetrator carries on with their life and you continue to live with the stigma. Talking about those that are displaced, how well are we educating the children? How well are we providing them with skills that they can use? Are they going to be reintegrated into society? At what point in time are we going to address their reintegration? How is it going to occur? Are they going to be further stigmatized? Because you and I know when you come out of those IDPs and you go back into, uh, well, are you going back to your village and your town? Or are they taking you into somewhere new where you become the stranger? and then you have to tell your story and then because of your experience you're looked at differently when you start looking at the women who've been um, violated you know and the husbands are gone because they went off to fight or they're part of the conflict or how do they get integrated and what happens for their children so there are many issues here so I give a four you're generous and I only give a four because they've done two national plans they've seen some of the gaps hopefully they're still doing something but as of today I am not aware um, I, actually I might even go back to three because when I start thinking about the the COVID the coronavirus situation and how that has been handled um, I might just give a three so I've changed my mind I'm allowed to aren't I Yes. So, no, I'm not impressed at all, and there's a lot of work to be done. Is Nigeria still facing the same problems with the um, second national action plan that you did with the first? 
I think so. I think it is. Um, that action plan came to an end in 2020, last year, isn't it? Yes, because it was 2017 to 2020. I have not seen any further report, have you? No, I have not seen a further report on the outcome of that implementation. Um, I would say that um, the coronavirus pandemic did not help the situation. If anything, it actually brought to light the, the sustained disparity um, and the adverse effect of um, a pandemic, albeit natural disaster. Um, it, it, it did bring certain things to the forefront. Um, I don't know that there's any more funding. I mean, Nigeria is borrowing money just to even deal with coronavirus pandemic. So I can't imagine that um, Nigeria is able to, or states are able to um, put funding into the, this national plan. Um, I mean, look at all the issues we're dealing with right now. Kidnapping, militancy, insurgents, land use, um, what else? Children out of school, coronavirus, displacement. Should we go on? But even refugee camps, we're not even sure what happened there. No, we don't know what's happened. We're, we're not sure about that. We just know that people are displaced and um, they go into these camps. Do they leave? Do they, are they there? Do they survive? Do they what go back? What programs are made for them? Um, I don't know. That's a good question. You know, there's the, this might be a short digression, but there was the school safety initiative. Do you know it? The schools, the safe school initiative that was started in something you should look into if you want to be a global person. And I encourage you. There's the is it called school safety? Safe School, it's called Safe School Initiative that started in 2017, right after Chibok. Um, monies were allocated, well, monies were garnered. So international funds, Nigerian fund, um, basically they put it into a trust fund, $30 million. Um, and basically it was, they had identified 500 schools in the northern part of Nigeria, mostly in the northeast. And those schools have been identified because of the insurgency that they had experienced and they wanted to make schools safe. So putting in place um, fences, building new um, laboratories, um, and putting in more education um, programs, teacher training, and um, they identify the original 30 schools, pilot schools. Well, I can tell you from what I have read and you will read as well, that zero fences ever went up. 73 prefabricated buildings were established. Most of them were given to the IDPs. I don't know how many of them still exist. Um, and they moved some children you know, from the areas that were being decimated, they moved them into some, I think some went to federal schools and some went into IDPs, unfortunately. So uh, recently there's been much talk about this initiative where $30 million 
was established um, and um, the paperwork or what I have read so far is they can account for about two million um, the rest of it poof so the Senate as of February this year is actually looking into establishing an investigation as to what happened not to 30 million but to 20 million so it will be interesting to see that I bring that up to say look at the situation here with this national plan do we actually know how much money was raised whether it was from entities of the government state government whether it was from international donors whether it was from multinationals because the idea was money will come from all of these pockets in order to um, implement the national um, plan but uh, I don't know that we have that figure but if you do find it Hawa, please send it my way <laughs> I think you're going to be the one to do that research but I am curious because I think this is how we begin to highlight um, some of these issues yeah what factors have hindered successful implementation of the United Nations Security Council Resolution 1325 and other resolutions alike in Nigeria? You and I have touched on this question repeatedly. Um, I will say um, prioritization. I don't think priority has been given to this. Most issues that concern women um, are not prioritized in this society, which is unfortunate because at the end of the day, we have to be honest, women give birth to the men. Um, and so if you care about your mother, your sister, your siblings, your child, then raising these issues and making them a priority is important. I would say funding um, is another key one. We still don't know where the funds are coming from, how much funding is available. And if you don't have funds, you cannot implement plans effectively. Um, number three, I think that um, the plans are verbose, they're verbose, really large plans, and we sometimes need to pare it down. If you want to see success, do it incrementally as opposed to trying to do all of it. Um, I do think that there's some things that have been done well, um, and, and having used the word well, I should say there's some things that have been implemented that could have long-range benefits. For instance, the gender units, for instance, the VAP law, the VAP Act, um, the effectiveness of those is based on further implementation and domestication, and then, of course, the prosecution of perpetrators, which, as you know, this is a society of impunity. So people can be um, arrested. It does not mean that it's going to go to court. It doesn't mean that we will eventually even know what the judgment is. I know that when I have asked questions as to how many, uh, how many cases of violence were actually prosecuted, you know, you'll get the numbers in terms of how many, how many were charged, but how many were successfully prosecuted, you may not get the, that accurate number, or how many actually have been registered on the sexual registry, sexual offense registry, offenders registry. So that, that's another thing. So I think I've talked about three things or four things now. So um, uh, let's see, talked about funding talked about how robust it is 
um, implementation. The implementation, I think, needs more um, attention. We need to pay more attention to implementation. We need to pay more attention to accountability. We must not live out accountability and transparency. Transparency is an issue in Nigeria. Everything is done in, you know, behind screens. Open it up. If this is for the people, then let the people know what it is. If you want to have a national plan to implement Resolution 1325, then it's important for people to even know what Resolution 1325 is. I believe there was a study done a few years ago, and 97% of the people didn't even know what it was. So if only 7% of the people you, you, you um, surveyed knew... Uh, <laughs> I didn't even know what it was until I started. Well, there you go. But you live here and you're a woman. Yes. Yes. So imagine. So until we start to start, to, to, until we begin honest, humble, vibrant discussions, we're just scratching the surface, which is why I went back to a score of three, because all of these things have not been done. Um, I don't think that... We have gone to the stakeholders. The stakeholders are you and I, the people. It's not about those in government. It's about everybody understanding what it is and why it's important and how it can change the lives of the other 50%. Because that 50% is equally responsible for the development of this country. Yes, that 50% needs to have a seat at the table be involved in decision-making, be involved in governance, be involved in the economy, be involved in their own lives. And that 50% must be respected and their human rights must not, at any point in time, be violated. Did I answer your question? Yes, did. Thank you so, so much. Thank you very much. Listen, it has been my honor. And I hope you continue to do this work. Yes. Well, it's no doubt a trying time for women and children in Nigeria, a country battling violent crimes from school abductions to insurgency, and the list is endless. Just recently, the UN and the federal government facilitated the issuance of birth certificates to children born in internally displaced persons camps. There are currently thousands of them who are stateless given the circumstance of their birth. Be sure that we'll continue with this conversation in subsequent episodes. A big thank you to Dr. Amma, Executive Director Liva Bordently. A big thank you to the two young ladies who drove this conversation, Chilean Azu and I am Ritani. And Hawakulu Yusufu, a final year student of the Lizard University. Thank you so much. And that's it on this episode of Thinking Remarked. Do join us again. I am Nifemi Okuntoye. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to Thinking Reimagined. We invite you to subscribe to our podcast. And welcome your comments, insights, and learnings as we strive to transform our global society. A change in mindset, engagement, collaboration, dialogue, awareness, and education. Thinking Remarked. Changing the mindset for a better global society. society.